Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Before we get started, just a public service announcement that today's sponsor is Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. You can listen to their audiobooks whenever and whenever you want and get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. That's www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. Chapter 6. Music for Jesus. Lyrics of Freedom. As he visited the campfires of his black troops during the Civil War, Colonel Thomas Wentworth Higginson was startled by the flower of poetry and potency of their songs. He found time to write down lyrics for three dozen songs that were to the men more than a source of relaxation. They were a stimulus to courage and a tie to heaven. Behind the gentle words in praise of God lurked the spiritual armor of people long at war with oppression. After the war, the Reverend Mr. Higginson published his notes and tried to describe the gripping power and meaning of the melodies he had heard. The music that captivated Higginson later conquered the world stage as the blues, jazz, and rock. These songs from the battlefield were unlike any other American music. The white Protestant hymns and evangelical melodies of the day did not approach the complex rhythms syncopation, and particularly the call and response and spontaneity of African-American music. Soloists sang a dialogue with or blended into a chorus that represented the congregation. Together, they created intricate patterns Europeans never tried. Lacking training in European music, Africans were not bound by its structure and restrictions. Flexible voices casually altered lyrics and sounds to produce what one critic called an improvisational communal consciousness. In 1845, a white traveler wrote, The blacks themselves leave out old stanzas and introduce new ones at pleasure. Traveling through the South, you may, in passing from Virginia to Louisiana, hear the same tune a hundred times, but seldom the same words accompanying it. Beginning with the banning of the drum as an instrument of communication, slaveholders tried to set boundaries for African culture. But the songs, folk tales, and religious experience of African Americans demonstrated that masters could never stifle black vitality, creativity, and community. The words and music of black songs not only lifted spirits and ignited hope, but sounded a call to a bright new day. 
the stark, haunting beauty of slave songs conveyed an immediate sense of community sharing and expression and bonded individuals with neighbors. It is one of history's great ironies that Christianity, the Bible, and the words of Christ would eagerly be grasped by both slaves and slaveholders. For one, religion, the book, and the words justified a profitable system. For the other, they would cast a curse on bondage and offer faith and deliverance from tears and chains. Over the meaning of Christianity, slave and master carried on a political debate about liberty and justice. Africans first met evangelical Christians as captors on the slave ships of the Atlantic. In the Americas, Protestant ministers called the Africans heathens in need of salvation and began the process of conversion. Hoping Christian baptism might lead to liberty or an easing of slavery's burdens, African Americans embraced the unfamiliar divinities. Worried lest a black stampede to church might undermine the system, in the 17th century, a Virginia court ruled, baptism of slaves doth not exempt them from bondage. Those in chains found in Christian spirit both inspiration and solace during a life of bondage. In the Bible, African Americans found a God who favored retribution, a Jesus who died to save humanity, and a Moses who led Hebrew people out of slavery. Surrounded by white demons and separated from home by a 3,000-mile ocean, African Americans prayed their caring God might again part the waves of the Red Sea for his chosen people. Owners approached conversion of their slaves with distinct goals. They aimed to turn resistance to docility and replace flight and sabotage with increased production. Laborers would be taught to obey masters and overseers and seek justice in heaven. To this end, the Bible and Christian worship were shaped into a propaganda for conformity. Some whites doubted that Christian teachings could reform blacks, and others resented the cost and time of this religious experiment. How would slave congregations interpret Baptist and Methodist messages of spiritual equality? Would instruction in Christian piety and ethics raise questions about slaveholders being entitled to enter heaven? Could Christianity in the hands of the oppressed, prove a double-edged sword. These nagging questions were debated among whites until emancipation. But an enthusiastic faith in Christianity carried the day. A rebellious, obstinate race, it argued, would become obedient servants. A savage people would be filled with awe of God and respect for his earthly rulers. To ensure success for their gospel, Masters selected trusted ministers, and laws required whites be present at all religious gatherings. In Latin America, a powerful Catholic church pressured slave owners and governments, and finally won reforms. In the United States, a Protestant church, fragmented into many separate denominations, proved too weak to challenge the South's powerful ruling class. Slaveholders paid the local clergy and commanded their obedience. The few pious men of God who questioned the gospel of slavery were soon silenced, fired, 
or driven away. In Bishop Meade's sermons, slaveholders found the dogma they sought. He urged black congregants, do all service for your masters and mistresses here on earth, as if you did it for God himself. The bishop said God was the highest slaveholder. Poor creatures, you little consider when you are idle and neglectful of your master's business, when you steal and waste and hurt any of their substance, when you are saucy and impudent, when you are telling lies and deceiving them, or when you prove stubborn and sullen and will not do the work you are set about without stripes and vexation. You do not consider, I say, that what faults you are guilty of towards your masters and mistresses are faults done against God himself, who hath set your masters and mistresses over you in his own stead, and expects that you would do for them just as you would do for him. And pray, do not think I want to deceive you when I tell you that your masters and mistresses are God's overseers, and that if you are faulty towards them, God himself will punish you severely for it in the next world. Whites wanted to believe their version of the gospel was having its desired impact on the African-American community. Advertisements for sales and auctions stressed the Christian character of the slaves, suggesting they were cowed, docile servants who would never flee from, lie to, or reject white orders. Frederick Douglass met many slaves who are under the delusion that God required them to submit to slavery and to wear their chains with meekness and humility. Others challenged the new ideas. This is the way it go, recalled West Turner of Virginia. Be nice to Massa and Missus. Don't be mean. Be obedient and work hard. That was all the Sunday school lesson they taught. John Thompson angrily described ministers he heard as God in the face and the devil in the heart. Submission to God was one thing, said a slave mother, but submission to the machinations of Satan was quite another. Most slaves still enjoyed their time in church as a relief from work, offering cultural and religious satisfactions. Some congregants dared to challenge white ministers. Beverly Jones told how an Uncle Silas stood up and asked Preacher Johnson of Virginia, Is us slaves going to be free in heaven? When the preacher refused to respond, Uncle Silas stood and repeated his question again and again. After that service, Uncle Silas never returned to church. African-American Christianity demanded its own gospel, and many slave communities began their own secret churches. There, Christianity was interpreted not by white preachers, but by congregations. One slave remembered, when they wanted to sing and pray, they would steal off into the woods. Whipping did not stop them from having meetings. When one place was located, they would find another. Some groups just found a thicket to hide in and pray for deliverance. Masters feared the spread of this independent Christian worship and dispatched the dreaded patty rollers to break up meetings. 
posses scoured the countryside, searching for illegal worship services, looking for trouble, and hoping for violence. Wes Turner told how his flock ran grapevines across paths to trip mounted paddy rollers. A white patrol finally located and attacked Turner and his church in the woods. A patroller yelled, You ain't got no time to serve God. We bought you to serve us. Many congregations managed to survive assaults and reopen churches. The Bible continued to breathe strength into their struggle and to lift their daily burdens. Their hymns were rarely sorrowful or tearful, for they had to raise spirits. The most common lyrical image selected by African-American congregations was that of the chosen people, a celebration of pride, survival, and humanity. Congregations compose such lyrics as, We are the people of God, the people that is born of God, and we are the people of the Lord. Away from the ears of their enemies, people told of slaveholders who could not reach heaven, but to the promised land I'm bound to go. Despite the walls erected by their masters, African Americans creatively employed religion, song, and story to tear at the chains that bound them. Biblical heroes and a world struggle for liberty masked the real theme of a coming day of liberation. Much as African Americans shaped the music of the New World, they recast the Europeans' abstract, severe God. Recent scholars have pointed out that African Americans converted God rather than converted to Him. The God worshipped in black churches was as immediate as the gods of Africa. Biblical characters became intimate personal friends or close relatives. One African American song proclaimed, Jesus is my bosom friend. Another announced, I'm going to talk with King Jesus by myself. And still others told about warm, friendly kinfolk, Sister Mary, Brother Moses, and Brother Daniel. This personal God, committed to justice, was willing to drown the Pharaoh's army of slaveholders to save the Hebrew children. So powerful a friend was bound to help his devout followers who had been forced to walk the earth in chains. African Americans sang the praises of a Jesus who could be counted on. Gwine to write to Mass Jesus to send some valiant soldier to turn back Pharaoh's army. Hallelujah. God and Jesus were portrayed as leaders on freedom's battlefield. That was exactly what masters were worried about. As early as 1810, planter Richard Byrd of Virginia informed the governor that slave preachers used their religious meetings as veils for revolutionary schemes. To carry forth a Christianity that provided slaves real comfort and support and yet avoided triggering white fury, black preachers carefully constructed sermons, tales, and lyrics that sounded innocent to white ears. The theme of revolutionary change appeared in spirituals as scriptural references. Were congregations saluting the Holy Spirit or talking treason? Samson threatens, If I had my way, I'd tear the building down. A spiritual about God's powerful voice ringing through heaven and hell concludes, My dungeon shook, and my chains, they fell.
was the past or future being celebrated. Masters and their hand-picked clergymen tried to fasten slaves' attention on heaven's glory rather than today's plight. Black theology invariably preached messages of deliverance. Some whites warned a militant Christianity could lead slaves astray, even toward rebellion. Slave plots often involved, as did an 1816 conspiracy in Camden, South Carolina, respected church members. The famous leaders of 19th century insurrections, Gabriel Prosser, Denmark Vesey, and Nat Turner, were devout Christians, convinced their rage to rebel was divinely inspired. Vesey's plan, recalled one of the conspirators, was about religion, which he would apply to slavery. Another witness testified Vesey read to us from the Bible how the children of Israel were delivered out of Egypt from bondage. He felt it was imperative to attempt their emancipation, however shocking and bloody might be the consequences. Retribution, Vesey stressed, would be pleasing to the Almighty. In Virginia, Nat Turner, a popular lay preacher, said a black avenging Messiah appeared in a dream to call him to action. God told him to fight against the serpent, for the time was fast approaching when the first should be last and the last should be first. After Turner's defeat, legislatures made slave preaching illegal. No black man ought to be permitted to turn a preacher through the country, the Richmond Enquirer warned. Christian doctrine and devotion to liberty remained intertwined in slave hearts long after Turner's time. In 1839, Mississippians heard many rumors of slave plots and suspicion centered around the itinerant preachers, reported an official. The next year, New Orleans papers complained about a black church it called a den for hatching plots against masters. Seven years later, twelve black worshippers were arrested by police and charged with singing hymns followed by sermons of the most inflammatory character. Christianity inspired Harriet Tubman, hero of the Underground Railroad and liberator of 300 slaves, who said, I must go down, like Moses into Egypt, to lead them out. She spoke with a God who willed freedom and convinced her, according to her biographer, to be ready to kill for freedom if that was necessary and defend the act as her religious right. During her rescue trips, she sang the spiritual, Go Down Moses, to announce her presence to plantation laborers. Slaves called her Moses. Once free, African Americans were able to directly challenge the hypocrisy of Christian masters and pro-slavery doctrines. Anthony Burns, who escaped from slavery in Richmond in 1854, only to be recaptured, heard in prison he was excommunicated by his white Baptist congregation. He defended himself. You charge me that in escaping I disobeyed God's law. No, indeed. That law which God wrote upon the table of my heart, inspiring the love of freedom and impelling me to seek it at every hazard, I obeyed. And by the good hand of my God upon men, I walked out of the house of bondage. Finally freed, Burns became an ordained minister for fugitive slaves living in Canada.
Christianity inspired northern anti-slavery forces. In 1846, the Reverend Moses Dixon and 11 other African Americans formed the Knights of Tabor, dedicated to strike the blow for liberty. They believed God was with Israel and gave the victory to the bondsmen, though they were opposed by 20 times their number. Our cause is just, and we believe in the justice of the God of Israel and the rights of man. No less than Christianity, the lyrics of secular and spiritual music became a battleground that pitted master against slave. Those songs such as Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child sounded a note of sad resignation. African-American music was usually upbeat, looking toward happier days and victories over old foes. In this music, the devil, often a stand-in for the white exploiter, is more comic than powerful, and he can easily be fooled by a clever slave. The devil's mad, and I'm glad. He lost the soul he thought he had. Planters and slaves fought a long tug-of-war for control of the slave's music, its themes, words, and tempo. On her Georgia plantation, Fanny Kemble wrote that many masters and overseers on these plantations prohibit melancholy tunes or words and encourage nothing but cheerful music. Some banned any reference to particular hardships. Masters demanded an accelerated beat in work songs in order to speed up labor in fields or on docks. A Richmond tobacco factory manager explained, We encourage their singing as much as we can, for the boys work better while singing. When whites manipulated the musical tempo to increase production, African-American laborers tried to slow the beat to relieve the strain. Planters also liked slaves to sing so they could check on their location and be sure they hadn't run off. Make a noise, make a noise, overseers ordered slaves, reported Frederick Douglass. Singing by slaves acted like the bell around a cow's neck that always gave its exact location. Slaves sang, but for their own reasons, to raise spirits, to affirm a sense of community, or to set a pace that would accomplish difficult jobs without injuries. When forced to sing, wrote Douglas, black voices often told a tale of grief and sorrow. In the most boisterous outbursts of rapturous sentiment, there was ever a tinge of deep melancholy. Douglas heard the same wailing notes when he visited Ireland during the potato famine. Slaves often used their music as a form of protest against evil people and conditions. In 1774, a white visitor, Nicholas Cresswell, wrote, In their songs, they generally relate the usage they have received from their masters and mistresses in a very satirical style and manner. Douglas remembered nonsense songs, in which a sudden, sharp hit was given to the meanness of slaveholders. For people denied any political rights, including a right to speak up. Lyrics in a song could deliver an incisive analysis or criticism. This short jingle offered humor, wit, and insight. My old mistress promised me when she died she'd set me free. She lived so long that her head got bald. 
and she give outen the notion of dying at all. To raise a hand against a white could mean death. To raise a laughing voice in a ditty involved no great risk. Jackass reared, jackass pitched, throwed old Mathel in the ditch. A clear understanding of slave exploitation was conveyed in a popular song about plantation production and distribution. We raise the wheat, they give us the corn. We bake the bread, they give us the crust. We sift the meal, they give us the skin. And that's the way they take us in. Sometimes, songs spread important news. Some lyrics conveyed hidden messages to slaves that whites could not decipher. Steal away, steal away, steal away to Jesus. Encourage runaways without warning masters. To tell blacks that one of their number had betrayed them, a song was used. Oh, Judas, he was a seatful man. He went and betrayed a most innocent man. Follow the drinking gourd, voiced love for freedom. The old man is awaiting to carry you to freedom, so follow the drinking gourd. Another stanza detailed directions for runaways, telling them to follow the North Star to Canada. During the Civil War, the approach of the Union Army brought a new defiance to slave songs. No more auction block for me. No more, no more. As Union soldiers drew closer, new lyrics were heard. I want to cross over into campground, to that promised land where all is peace. In 1862, Susie King, 12, and her grandmother stood in a Savannah church fervently singing an old hymn. Yes, we all shall be free when the Lord shall appear. The police rushed in and arrested all who were there, charging them with planning freedom and singing the Lord when they meant Yankee. Susie King smiled, for she knew freedom was rolling forth like an old spiritual, and neither police nor patty rollers could stop the infectious music. Within months, King was part of her people's liberation, a teacher of reading and writing for former slaves, serving as soldiers in the Union Army. As an adult, she wrote an autobiography of her exciting life. Flight and Revolt Chapter 7 Runaways and Maroons I never saw the day since I knew anything that I didn't want to be free, remembered slave Anthony Benji. Among the good trades I learned was the art of running away to perfection. I made a regular business of it, wrote Henry Bibb. Beginning with the first arrivals from Africa, slaves fled their masters and overseers. Masters said one would rather a Negro do anything else than run away. Slaves left good masters and bad, easy work and hard. James Christian was not permitted to marry the woman of his choice. 
he fled a relaxed life in President John Tyler's White House. Most runaways abandoned plantation work on the spur of the moment. These men and women were trying to escape a beating, prevent a sale to a new owner, or to search for nearby relatives and loved ones. Many ran to protest work, whippings, or evil overseers, and tried to remain hidden until they won promises of better conditions. Others carefully planned to reach free land, and some tried to establish their own settlements in remote, hard-to-penetrate swamps or mountains. From the New England Articles of Confederation in 1643 forward, European masters legally bound themselves to assist in the return of escaped slaves. Slaveholders had this pledge written into the U.S. Constitution and two Federal Fugitive Slave Acts. Slave hunting was to be carried out by Federal Marshals and the U.S. Army if necessary. Slaveholders would not tolerate any gap in their defense system. They bitterly resented Native American nations for accepting African Americans into their villages and were furious about an Indian adoption system that drew no color line. To seal off this escape hatch, Europeans demanded in treaties that Indian nations agree to return all fugitives. In 1721, the governor of Virginia had the five civilized nations promise to surrender escapees. And in 1726, the governor of New York made the Iroquois Confederacy take the same pledge. In 1746, the Hurons promised, and the next year, the Delawares promised. None returned a single fugitive. Many nations made clear they stood ready to fight for African men and women who had become their relatives and loved ones. Along the Atlantic coast and spreading westward through woods and over mountains to the Mississippi, two dark races began to blend and marry. Artist George Catlin, writing in the 1830s, called the children of this mixture the finest and most powerful men I have ever yet seen. From New England to the Carolinas and westward to Minnesota, masters had to confront guerrilla forces born of these American alliances in the woods. The strongest U.S. coalition of red and black people flowered in Florida around 1776. African runaways from plantations in Georgia became the peninsula's first settlers and were soon joined by Seminoles fleeing oppression by the Creek Nation. The alliance was solidified when the Africans taught the newcomers methods of rice cultivation, learned in Senegambia and Sierra Leone, Africa. The two dark peoples developed a prosperous and peaceful farming and grazing economy. They also built a military alliance based on potent guerrilla strike forces. Masters in Georgia and the Carolinas saw these successful armed black communities acting as a beacon to draw off their slaves. They feared armed uprisings that could destroy their slave system. To crush the alliance, Florida was repeatedly invaded by U.S. slave-hunting posses and troops and was finally purchased by the United States in 1819. Florida's African Seminoles led in challenging the U.S. in pitched battles and guerrilla resistance. Between 1816 and 1858, the black and red soldiers of the Seminole Nation held the U.S. Army, Navy, and Marines at bay. 
The cost of these Florida wars for the United States was $40 million, with 1,500 servicemen dead. At times, half of the U.S. Army was deployed against the Seminole Military Alliance. Whether it was to join the resistance in Florida, flee to relatives, or reach freedom in the North or West, the decision to escape filled slave hearts with fear. Lewis Clark recalled, All the white part of mankind that he has ever seen are enemies to him and all his kindred. How can he venture where none but white faces shall greet him? The mere thought of abandoning wives, husbands, children, and loved ones deterred many, delayed others, and filled the moment with pain. In 1850, a New York convention of fugitive slaves recalled the decision. So galling was our bondage that to escape from it, we suffered the loss of all things and braved every peril and endured every hardship. Some of us left parents, some wives, some children. Some of us were wounded with guns and dogs as we fled. Some of us secreted ourselves in the suffocating holds of ships. Nothing was so dreadful to us as slavery. To compound their problems, blacks were denied a knowledge of geography and fed calculated lies. William Johnson of Virginia was told the Detroit River was 3,000 miles wide. Sidney Allen, an engineer on his master's boat, was told that in Canada, nothing but black-eyed peas could be raised. Susie King heard Yankees would hitch black people to carts instead of horses. The entire white South was taught to be alert for fugitives, and masters were ready to dispatch armed posses. Regular patrols, the paddy rollers, were drafted for six cents an hour, a militia that nightly searched for fugitives in the woods and hills. Some men ran a thriving business raising and training bloodhounds for these hunts. Dan McCowan advertised, My hounds is well trained, and I've had 15 years' experience. My rates is $10 per head of catched in the beat where the master lives. $15 in the county, and $50 out of the county. One trained bloodhound cost $300, but it was worth it when the problem of fleeing slaves became an epidemic. Tracking runaways was a dangerous and difficult job. Some of them would rather be shot than be took, a white worker told reporter Olmsted. One deputy, armed with a warrant, followed his man into Virginia's dismal swamp, only to find him standing neck-deep in water. The deputy quietly returned to headquarters, erased the man's name from the warrant, and wrote, Seeable, but not come Masters often advertised for runaway slaves in local newspapers. These descriptions by owners reveal some important truths about people, their skills, their abilities to read, write, and speak Indian or foreign languages, their determined efforts to reach loved ones. Fugitives were described as bearing the scars of beatings, whippings, or brandings, R for those who ran before. It was clear what they were running from. Cut into the backs of men and women was the evidence of resistance. Sarah Grimke, 
told of a teenage seamstress who ran away so often she was whipped until her back was lacerated. Then a heavy iron collar with three prongs projecting from it was placed around her neck to serve as a mark to describe her in case of escape. Owners described some runaways as impudent and insolent, notorious or unruly scoundrels. But others were called humble, cheerful, and loyal men and women who had no reason to leave. In 1846, a Louisiana master wrote of three runaways, the first very industrious and always answered with a smile, the second an industrious boy who spoke to whites very humbly with his hand to his hat, the third also addressed whites humbly and respectfully with a smile. A study of southern newspapers from 1732 to 1790 found that there were 7,846 fugitives advertised, and the vast majority were young men. But women, including those who were pregnant, carrying infants, or leading small children, numbered 10% in Maryland, 12% in Virginia and North Carolina, and more than 18% in Georgia and South Carolina. In South Carolina, for example, 3,746 runaways were men, 698 were women, including 14 who were pregnant, and 122 were children. These notices described Africans who fled in the company of white indentured servants, or received help from whites or free blacks, but most were on their own. In 1785, a South Carolina planter advertised for four generations of women, a grandmother, mother, and daughter, with a young child. In 1789, a Romeo and Juliet fled together from slavery in Virginia. The next year, four men and two women fled Georgia. One, Sue, was lame with rheumatism, but managed to carry her three children, Juno, ten, Sarah, seven, and Dolly, three. Sometimes, large numbers fled together. In 1779, the Eddings Plantation on Edisto Island, Georgia, lost 36, including 12 women who left together. Writing a year and a half after they left, Mr. Eddings optimistically promised any returning home of their own accord will be forgiven. In 1826, 27 Kentucky slaves were being transported down the Ohio River by boat when they broke away. Swinging clubs, axes, and knives, they killed five whites, seized and sank the boat, and fled to Indiana. In 1830, a white complained that in four North Carolina counties, slaves come and go as they please, and if an attempt is made to stop them, they immediately fly to the woods for months. Mass flights to freedom were more common in the border states of Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, Maryland, and Delaware than the Deep South. In 1826, a large number of runaways boarded a boat and sailed to the north during a Portsmouth, Virginia celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. In 1845, some men and women from two Maryland counties armed themselves with clubs, swords, knives, a pistol, and a gun and began a march northward. They were captured. In August 1848, Patrick Doyle, 
a white Danville, Ohio college student, organized a band of 75 armed blacks in Kentucky heading toward the Ohio River. They fought two pitched battles with posses before being captured. Three black leaders were executed, and Doyle was sentenced to 20 years in jail. These massive escapes could be classified as armed revolts. Some individuals were fearless of punishments. They fled repeatedly or dared the impossible. A couple, Remus and Patty, fled a Battle Alabama plantation in 1836, only to be captured and jailed in Montgomery. They escaped to Georgia, were recaptured in Columbus, and again escaped, this time for good. In 1842, a slave named Abraham cleverly forged his own freedom papers in Mobile, Alabama, and reached Baltimore. When he was arrested, his imitation documents fooled a judge, and he was released and reached the North. Six men escaped from Key West, Florida, in 1858 in a small boat, and sailed to the Bahamas. They decided to write their masters. Most wrote insulting letters, a few apologized for taking his good horse, and one signed his letter, Your Most Obedient Servant. Some fugitives sent masters bills for their labor. Trouble stalked the road to freedom. Teenagers William and Charles Parker fled Maryland, only to be confronted by three whites who knew they were fugitives. The black youths chased them off, but had to run as every house was lighted up and we heard people talking and horses galloping this way and that way. The brothers finally reached safety in Pennsylvania. Some trips took a long time. In Texas, a slave hunter told of chasing a runaway for weeks. We caught him once, but he got away. He gave me a kick in the face and broke. I had my six-shooter handy and I tried to shoot him, but every barrel missed fire. We shot at him three times with rifles, but he'd gone too far off. We chased him, and my dog got close to him once, but he had a dog himself and fit my dog. The black man reached Mexico, where slavery had been abolished in 1829. In 1855, young Anne Wood led a Christmas Eve flight of her friends from Virginia, but they were surrounded by an armed posse. Wood calmly raised her double-barreled pistol waved a long knife, and told the whites to step aside or blood would flow that night. The posse galloped off, and Ann Wood and friends reached Philadelphia. At least two African Americans had friends ship them to freedom from southern cities. Henry Brown climbed into a box in Richmond, Virginia, and had a white friend mail him to the Philadelphia anti-slavery office. Sometimes he traveled upside down, but he survived to write a book and to become a national hero. William Peel Jones climbed into a box in Baltimore and spent 17 hours in a steamboat before reaching Philadelphia. Escape disguises and techniques ranged from clever to ingenious. Blacks pretended to be free or white. Men became women, and women men. Some dressed as sailors, took jobs on ships, Runaways threw off the scent of bloodhounds with pepper, dead fish, or by rubbing graveyard bones on their clothes. 
Some pretended to ask whites for directions, then headed along another road. Others escaped on rafts built from fence posts and across bridges built from sleds. From Tennessee, Mr. and Mrs. John Little walked to Chicago. Mrs. Little, who was 17 at the time, later remembered, My shoes gave out before many days. Then I wore my husband's old shoes till they were used up. Then we came barefoot all the way to Chicago. My feet were so blistered and sore and my ankles swollen that I had to keep on. There was something driving me. This ends side two of cassette two of Breaking the Chains. Please fast forward to the end before loading cassette three.